So as I move into early 2022, uh, there's clarity around that for our, our children. Uh, our oldest son had decided to, to go over to the hospital and be an EMT, and our youngest son decided he was going to go off to college in, in August. And as that began to take shape for them, something began to take shape for me. I realized that now there was this kind of invisible uh, finish line where no longer would our two sons be in my house every day. No longer would I be one of the primary influences in their life for the bulk of their day. And that began to press in on me with these questions. Have I equipped them? Have I set them up? Not, not so much with life lessons. I wasn't concerned about that. But, but have I, as a father, led them what their story is within his story? And although our boys had been a part of church, I've been a pastor for nearly 25 years, uh, they, they can talk to you about times when they were in church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and, and Wednesday morning. When they, were, when, when they were just a few months old, they were being passed around, junior high and high school kids in our youth group when I was in student ministry. They sat through preschool ministries, children's ministries, student ministries. They sat through my preaching, and they still choose to come, believe it or not, uh, for, for the last several years since they were 10 or 11 years old. But I still have this question, like even with all that instruction, even with what we've done in our home, intentionally reading the Bible with them, uh, talking about life with them, when they would go through hardships, when they would go through good things, pointing them to Jesus, I just had this question, when they leave this house, will they be able to simply articulate the beauty and the wonder and the simplicity of what God has done for us, of who God is, of who they are within his story, of what he's done for us in Jesus, and what life was he has called them to. And that question wouldn't leave me alone. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that it was our God, through the power of his spirit, convicting me. Craig, you need to make sure your kids have what they need. And so this builds, and now here I am sitting at this counter between 4, 4.30 a.m. That time of year, you can start to see that subtle glow where darkness is giving way to light. And all throughout that morning, as the sun rose and the new day dawned, uh, God, I think, helped me come up with a concise way to help our boys be equipped. What happened in those few hours uh, came this kind of rudimentary sheet of paper uh, that had on it this acronym uh, called BASICS. Like, how can I help our sons understand the basics of faith, the basics of the story that God has invited them into? Each letter in basics, uh, because it's an acronym, represents part of that story. Uh, the, the B is that there is a big God. I want our boys to know there is a big God who loved them, who, but that there, who created them, who formed them and fashioned them in his image. But that there was this adversary, Satan, who was opposed to God's best in their life, opposed to God's best in our life. But yet God didn't stop working. He had a solution in mind for them. He had a solution in mind for me. He has a solution in mind for you. Uh, he made a way through Jesus to be made right with him again. And God invites us into that life. He's given us an invitation. And that invitation will lead us to being changed and transformed people. And as we're changed and transformed, we live this life of surrender. And, and I'm not that brilliant, so I know it had to come from the Lord. And I, I love the picture that I can do with just my hand. I can remember that it's a big God and there's an adversary, but God's provided a solution and there's an invitation and he invites me to be changed. And if you're like me, you don't have a sixth finger. So you're like, what do I do now? Well, you have an open hand. An open hand is a sign of surrender. And so I'm going to give God all that I have and all that I am. 
And so I took that and I took a list of readings I had to a big God or led me on a journey through the word solution to just kept bringing to my reading plan. In fact, if you came in and you saw them on the tables, this is the very reading plan that I gave to our boys. I just changed the colors to match our theme for this series. And I just asked them, I said, would you guys over the next six weeks join me? And would you intentionally read a new passage of scripture every day for five days of the week? Would you on that sixth day when we meet, would you, would you just reflect on what you've read? I encourage them to grab a journal, open up their notes app, reflect on two questions. God, what I believe you're saying to me through this passage and what do you want me to do about it? And so we met weekly for six weeks and I walked them through the basics. And here's what I can't tell you. I can't tell you that those weeks with them have completely changed their life. I learned very early on, I have no control over if my boys um, commit their lives to Jesus uh, for the rest of their days. But what I do have control over is responding to the prompts that God places in my heart. And I know that I have been faithful. As I was on this journey, and I couldn't shake the simple way to remember that it wasn't just as in who we are and what he's done for me and what he's called me to. But in conversation after conversation with other followers of Jesus, um, I would hear about their own stumbling block. Like, how do I really help someone understand this gospel, this good news about who God is and who we are and what God's done and what he's called me to? And so I hoped and I prayed that maybe God would use this to help other followers of Jesus like he used it to help me and hopefully help out my sons. And that leads me to this place where I'm looking forward to over the next six weeks leading you, uh, fellow followers of Jesus, and even some of you who are curious about faith, to be able to grasp and stand in awe and be changed by the simplicity of the gospel. Uh, when I say the gospel, maybe many things come to mind. And maybe you've heard that word for years. It feels like a churchy word. Like, what, what exactly is the gospel? The word gospel has been misused. It's been hijacked. Uh, some will talk about a social gospel, which simply talks about how it's good news for gospel, how they oppressed, but that's an incomplete gospel. Things get better for you, and maybe you end up with more money in your bank account, and you end up with all this great health. And for those of you who have been following Jesus faithfully, and you're still sick, and you're still poor, you understand that the health and wealth gospel doesn't work either. So what is the gospel? The, gospel, the word gospel comes to us. It's our translation of a Greek word, euangelion, which simply means a message heralded. And it was specifically a message of good news. And that's why we often interchange the words gospel and good news, specifically when talking about faith, because it's this good news, it's this message, it's this gospel about a God who is so big and so incredible, and yet he loves us so much that when an adversary was trying to come against us and deceive us and take us away from his hope and his life, that God stuck with us and loved us enough to make a solution and to bring a solution. He sent Jesus to live and to die and to show us how to live and to die. And he invites us into his new life where we can be changed. I can have new passions and new interests that honor King Jesus. And as I live a life of surrender, God uses me in incredible ways. And that's the gospel. And capture, and over the next six weeks, I wanna walk power in the mystery of who God is and who you are and what he's done and what he's called you to. In the churches that I grew up in, uh, I often heard the gospel spoken of is only what, how Jesus saves us. I would hear about how I'm a sinner in need of his grace, which is true. I would hear how Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I needed to believe in him, which is true. But so often where the gospel stopped and as I've been following Jesus over a number of years now, I realize that the gospel is not only what we're saved from, 
but it's what we're saved to. Eternal life is not something, by the way, that happens the day you die. It's something that begins as you come to faith in Jesus. You get to live for the principles and the, the, the power and the purposes of God today, and we get to experience in its perfection when we die or when Christ comes again, whichever comes first. So for the next six weeks, let me take you on a journey that I took my sons on, and I pray that you will be impacted by the beauty and the simplicity and the mystery God. And I know even as I say that, I can look in the room, I can see your faces. Big seems like too generic of a word. Like, come on, isn't there a better word? Like, like big just seems to fall short. Like, how big is this God? And I get it, but the word basic starts with a B, so we get big, all right? Uh, but even if I told you the word great, uh, that would seem to fall short. If I said that our God is epic, that would seem to fall short. If I said that God is grand, that he's glorious, those words seem to fall short because our God is so, so big, bigger than our words can begin to articulate. But we're going to start with him because the story starts with him. In fact, the human story starts with him. Like it literally starts with him. What are the opening lines of our Bible that tell the story of God's love and care for and plans for humanity. Genesis chapter one, verse one begins how? In the beginning, who? God, it all starts with him. He is a big God and it's his story that he invites you into. Uh, we're gonna use Psalm uh, this morning. Um, I would encourage you, by the way, um, I'm intentionally trying to avoid using passages in the reading plan. Um, but I am convinced that if you will walk through this uh, by yourself, uh, with those in your home over the next week, you will be confronted with the incomparable greatness of who God is, and it will be a deep encouragement uh, to you. I'll say more about that later. Before we jump into Psalm 145, uh, this is God's word, uh, so let's ask him to do what only he can do and impress it upon our hearts. God, I thank you so much for your words that you, a mighty, incredible, magnificent God who we can't even begin to describe adequately with words, would care so much for us uh, that you would speak through the power of your spirit through men like Moses, through poets like David, uh, through prophets like Jonah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and more, that you would lead historians to record the records of King, allow us to hear your story that you would give us words that tell us about your son, Jesus, and the life we can have in him and through him. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's amazing and it's a miracle. God, these are your words. And so, Father, as we dive into Psalm 145 today, do the work that you can do. Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. Uh, would you draw us to see your incomparable greatness? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 145, uh, for those of you that like little extra facts, is the last psalm credited to David. Uh, it's actually a psalm that is in a form of what we call an acrostic. Uh, if you know what an acrostic is from your literature classes, maybe you tried to forget that. Uh, it's often when a poem or some sort of literary writing um, intentionally has successive movements with letters that are chosen that also tell kind of a story. And so in this case, the acrostic is the Hebrew alphabet. We miss it in our English versions, but in Psalm 145 in Hebrew, you have the, the Hebrew alphabet and every successive part begins the next consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Why would an author choose to do that? Why would God lead somebody to do that when he writes his word? 
Well, he leads them in that because when you go from, in our case, English, A to Z, or in Hebrew, A left to, I forget the last letter all of a sudden, um, you, you get this kind of complete picture. Now, David knows, and we're going to see it, that he cannot give us a complete picture of the greatness of God. But what he's trying to say is, I'm going to try to give you this exhaustive look at just how incredible, how big, how great, how mighty God is. And so that's what unfolds in Psalm 145. In the opening few verses, what I would call the introduction, he, he gives us uh, a window into what he's trying to do. He writes, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. From the very beginning, David says, God is all all about praising you. This is all about blessing you. This is all about exalting you. Like this is all about you. And what does he say about God's greatness? Is that it's going to take forever to give God praise. In, in, in verse 1, in verse 2, I'll praise your name forever and ever. Verse 2, extol your name forever and ever. And he even bookends the entire psalm with this idea that, that praising God, his greatness is so impactful, his bigness is so grand, that it will take eternity to bring him praise. Verse 21, the psalm ends with the same sentiment. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord, let every creature praise his holy name. When? Forever and ever. But God's greatness demands praise forever and ever. His bigness demands our our blessing of him, our praising of him, our exalting of him forever and ever. He tells us something else about his greatness in these opening verses, is that God's greatness is unfathomable. You can't fully comprehend God's greatness. That's why our words fall short. As gifted as a writer as David is, he, we're going to see him kind of grasp for words and he'll, he's just one thing to describe God and he comes back and he says it a different way and then he, he changes it and says it another way because he's just trying to capture how big and how great God is. I like how the New Living Translation says it. It says, no one can measure the greatness of God. It's impossible. You can't measure it. I was curious because my mind gets calling these little ADD moments. And uh, so as I was reading, I was like, well, who made the biggest measuring tape? Uh, And so I Googled it like you can. And uh, I saw that a man named Justice Rowe uh, had a company, Rowe and Sons, that that made tape measures. And the largest tape measure, like real tape measure ever made, uh, measured 600 feet. It could measure 600 feet, plated in gold. Now, I don't know what's 600 feet that you need to measure with a tape measure, but, but he did it. But even if you think about 600 feet, essentially two football fields, guess what? It's still not big enough to measure the greatness, the bigness, the grandness, the majesty of who God is. But David's going to try us. And what David does is he characters in later verses. In fact, in verses one and two, he says uh, this word twice. I will praise your name forever and ever. Verse two, extol your name forever and ever. Uh, That Hebrew word uh, speaks of the reputation, the character, the essence, what makes somebody who they are. And so David says, I'm gonna praise you because of who you are. And he continues on beginning in verse four to tell us what he's experienced in who God is. And so we're gonna look at these verses to discover what we can about why God is worthy of our praise forever and ever. What makes him so big? What makes him so great? Verses four through six. 
One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And David says, even I will meditate on your wonderful works. Back to the generations who are commending. He says, they tell of the power of your awesome work. David, I will proclaim like the right words. I'm sorry, in verse four, he says that one generation commends your works to another. Then he clarifies, they tell of your mighty acts. It's not just his works, it's his mighty acts. But, but it's not just his mighty acts, it's the glorious splendor of his majesty. But it's not just the glorious splendor of his majesty, it's his wonderful works. But it's not just his wonderful works, it's the power of his awesome works. But it's not just the power of his awesome works, it's his great deeds. Like, like David is just like, God is so incredible, guys, you have to see it. And what is he telling the story of? He says that he is powerful and he is mighty. He, he's looking back at who God has been. We can look at David's other Psalms. We can see that David knew who God was. He'd experienced him. How had David experienced him? Well, we know that David experienced him in nature, so he's likely thinking of how, how God is so mighty and powerful even in nature. Remember, David was a shepherd. He was out in the wilderness. He, he, he even tells people that, that when a shepherd, sorry, when a shepherd, he was the shepherd, when a lion came to attack a sheep or when a bear came to attack a sheep, he defended them. He saw wild and rugged things. He saw the beauty of God's creation. People will talk about two books that reveal to us the greatness of who God is. One book is the Bible. What we believe at Lebanon Christian Church, along with so many others throughout history, to be God's word. These are the words of our creator to us. And as they were given uh, to the men and women who wrote these words, they were given without error. These are his words. But it's not just the book of the Bible that gives us and reveals to us the greatness of God. It's, it's, it's the book of creation. It's why when you are in a beautiful place, when you're, when you're overlooking snow-capped mountains, that you're just kind of drawn to this place of, how incredible is God? It's why when you're out in the woods and there's this, this rippling brook that's coming or you're watching these roaring rapids that you just kind of stand transfixed as you stare and gaze into them because they, they invite you to wonder and to awe about the God, the creator who made them. It's why when you go to a vast uh, cave and you're overwhelmed, look out over it. There's a rock as the sun reflects. It's like, God, you're incredible. It's why many of you, when you see wildlife in their natural habitat, you just... You just have to watch. Like, even in Indiana, where we see deer all over the place, there's just something about pausing and watching the gratefulness and the stillness and kind of the stealth of that doe or that buck or that fawn as they move through the field or the grass. Yesterday, we're driving back from, from friends' houses, and I look out ahead of us, and it, it looks like what is a bald eagle. And so we pulled over, and we watched these two bald eagles feed on some dead animal in the field nearby, and we couldn't stop watching because there's something beautiful that invites us to wonder and awe. It's why when you go outside at night that you're captivated on the one hand by the cosmos, but you're dumbfounded as well as the depths just kind of invite you in. See, one of the mighty acts that David would have been envisioning is that, that God created all of this. That speaks to a grand and big and incredible God. But it's, it's, it's what God has done. I think that right now he's thinking of the story of how God's interacted with his people. A great and mighty and big God who saves them through a flood. A great and mighty and big God who, 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 who establishes his people through an old man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. A big God who, who, who grows that people 
And when they're forgotten in Egypt, he rescues them through Moses the Deliverer, a, a great and mighty God who will, who will part a sea, a great and mighty God who will supply food from heaven in the wilderness, a great and mighty God who, even when his people rebel, will stick with them and stay with them. That's how big this God is. He is great and he is mighty and he is powerful. And that's why David says he deserves our praise forever and ever. It's part of who he is. It's part of his reputation. He is powerful and he is mighty. But he is more than just power and might. Look at verse 7. So these generations commend by celebrating his abundant goodness. And they joyfully say, words fall short. He's also good. He's not just powerful. He's not just mighty. But he is good. He is righteous. You put those together and it gives this picture that our God is a benevolent God who always does what is right and good. David doubles down, verse nine, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. When, when Jesus is approached in, in his ministry, someone will come to him and will say, good teacher, what must someone do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus stops and says, listen, don't call me good. There's only one who is good. And that's my father. God is good. God is powerful. God is mighty. But he is good. But he's more than just powerful, mighty, and good. He's loving. Look at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. This verse is part of the reason why we're confident that David is pulling from the history of Israel and creation in four verses five, six, and seven, where God revealed himself to Moses and he says, I, the Lord, am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. It's who I am. And that word love there is important. We like to interpret all kinds of ways in our culture and our world. But that word love comes from the Hebrew word chesed and it means the covenantal love of God, the loyal and faithful love of God. So our God is not just powerful and mighty. That makes him big. He is good and he is loving. In fact, the love of God would so impact a man named John through Jesus that John would write a letter to the early church telling and proclaiming in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. That's who he is. He is powerful. He is mighty. He's love, he's good, he's faithful. His faithfulness is anthemed elsewhere. Uh, again, the aspect of that covenantal love, the end of verse 13 says the Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. And you can kind of see, and we don't have time to go into it, if you would just linger in Psalm 145, though, here's what I will tell you and almost promise you, is that if you would just reflect on it, you will be amazed at these layers. Like the picture I had this week was the thing of Shrek when he talks about being an onion. You got to just keep peeling the layers back, right? Like, like this, this, this psalm is like uh, an onion. There's layers to it that help us see and appreciate the greatness of who God is. Because beyond his power and his might, beyond his goodness, beyond his love and his faithfulness, uh, we see in this psalm, uh, the beginning of verse 13, that he's a, he's a God who's eternal. He's enduring. His kingdom is everlasting. We see a God who provides for his people. We looked at that a couple weeks ago in our Elijah series. He, he provides in so many different ways. 
We see here a God who is near, a God who comes close. We see here a God who, who saves, a God who rescues, a God who watches over his people. He's all these things. And this is what makes God so big. So big. And I hope that as you read these words, as you hear these words, you are impressed by the bigness and the greatness of who God is. And that's why the basics begins with a big God. Because it all starts with him. And it's amazing, this big God, this great God who is powerful, this great God, this big God who is good and who is loving and who is faithful and who is everlasting and eternal and and who watches over us, who's present with us, who hears our cries, that this great big God would love us so much to create us. No one forced God to create humanity. He chose to. He wanted a relationship with us. We're the only creation made in his image, a relational image. We know in the beginning in the garden that God dwelt in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in his image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. Like like, like God made us in his image as relational people. He tells us it's not good for man to be alone. Like God wants a relationship with this big God. Wants a relationship with you. And yet... We know that there is an enemy, there is an adversary, Satan, who is opposed to that. He wants to deceive you and lead you away from the truth and the hope that God provides in his life. And yet God loves you so much that he's provided a solution. The great big God, he became a little man on planet Earth, zipped all the bigness of God up in human flesh and walked among us to show us what it looks like to truly live as his people. Not only show us how to live, but he died. A death on a cross, a death that we deserve because the wages of sin is death. And that if we will believe in that, he invites us to have faith and trust in what Jesus did. And so as we follow him, we are changed. We are made new, new desires, new heart, new hopes, new dreams, new expectations. God, surrender to him, we live for him. But it all starts with this great, big God. And that's the gospel. God intends for you and I to share this with other people. You can't get around the language beginning in verse four. He says, great is the Lord and most worthy of his praise. Sorry, that was verse three. Uh, One generation commends your works to another. Like generations tell this story again And again, and there's emphasis on speaking words. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of your glorious splendor, proclaiming your great deeds. And even in verse seven, singing of your righteousness. Like we're intended to share with others how incredible and big and mighty and great our God is. I would challenge you as we journey through this basic series, if you are a parent encourage your children or walk alongside your children and go through the basics with them. Read the readings with them. If they're, if they're too young to read on their own, then, then get a, a New Living Trans version of Scripture, like the New Internet. Read the reader's version. Or if your kids are old enough to read on their own, then encourage them to, to read the readings each day and, and try to find time to touch base with them. Even at, at a minimum, it's through text or something to, to, to see what they've, they've discovered as they've heard about the big God this week or next week, the adversary. Walk with them through the plan. Help them. And we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you because I know that not everybody is intuitive for, but but just a a way to kind of have the daily habit, how to quiet yourself, how to read, questions to ask, 
I, I promise you that if you were to get a journal and a pen, uh, this would be even more profound for you. But use your technology, use your phone, take notes. What is God teaching you? What is he trying to say to you? What are you going to do about it? And, and, and pray for other people. And as you as a parent take the lead in the life of your child, you will help them discover the basics of the simplicity of this gospel. Who God is, who they are, what he's done, and the life that he has called them to. And just for parents, and it's not hard for you as a be um, anything other. There are so many competing messages if you're a parent that you hear every day. What should you provide for your kids? What opportunities should you, should you let them uh, be a part of? What experiences should you, should you give them? What does it mean to be a good parent, a good mom, a good dad in our day and age? We know that there are pressures on you from uh, your, your children's peers and, and their parents and society as a whole. And sometimes it can all get kind of muddled as you fight your way around what's most important for your kids. But hear this with clarity. There is nothing more important for your child than for you to teach them how to love and follow Jesus. Not just through your words, but through your life. The greatest gift as a parent you can give your child is showing them an authentic faith of your own and showing them how to have it for themselves. It will not matter when they're 30 how far they can hit a ball. It will not matter how many takedowns they had in wrestling. It will not matter how many medals. Don't sweater jacket. What we've been following for the accolades of this world. The most important gift you can give your child is showing them and teaching them and modeling for them how to trust and follow Jesus. The world doesn't want you to hear that, but the Lord wants you to know that, that that's what is most important in your life. He is a big God and he's worthy of our praise for eternity. In just a moment, we're going to sing some songs together. We're going to sing about his greatness uh, and uh, give you a chance to put these words into practice. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your words and your truth. And God, I pray that you would do what only you can and you would bring conviction and transformation through the power of your spirit.